Last week we started a new series uh, looking at the, the beautiful poetry in the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 was a great introduction to this book as it sets out the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are like a strong and fruitful tree, while the wicked are like chaff blown away eh, by the wind. And in that psalm, this division is revealed by their different response to God's word, but it's based on their different relationship with God. So we concluded that the wicked are like those who refuse and ridicule the word of God because they don't know God, because they haven't trusted in Christ. Whereas the righteous are those who delight in, who meditate on, who live out God's word. Because they're God's people. Because they've trusted in Jesus. Well, our next psalm introduces another major theme of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 dealt with the importance of the word of God. Psalm 2 kind of introduces the struggle that we have living in this world. A world that's in rebellion against God. Now this psalm is, is another one of those psalms where the Bible, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, sorry, doesn't actually say who wrote it. But in, a, in Acts chapter 4, the apostles, they say that David was the author. And so like many of the psalms, this psalm reflects David's life and his experience as God's chosen king. But the psalm also goes beyond that and points to a greater king, the coming Messiah, and calls this world to accept him as the one true king. So we're going to read Psalm 2 just now, and then we'll have a look at what it means. So Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Many of the Psalms contain questions, honest, thought-provoking questions, about what happens in this world and in our lives. And this is how the psalm begins. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? 
David saw that the rulers and the nations of this world were all scheming to collaborate against a common opponent. But who were they all fighting against? Who was this common enemy that they were all working against? Well, the next verse tells us, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. These rulers are against God and against his anointed one. So who is his anointed one? Well, in obedience to God, the prophet Samuel visited the town of Bethlehem to choose one of his sons as, one of the sons of Jesse as the king of Israel. That was because God had rejected the first king of Israel, King Saul, because of his disobedience. And when eventually Samuel saw David, the Lord said to him, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. And so Samuel took that horn of oil and anointed David with the oil. Declaring that David was God's chosen king of Israel. So in a sense, David could be describing himself here as the anointed one. David was surrounded by nations that were conspiring against the Lord and against him as the chosen one of Israel. God's chosen king. That was because they wanted to break free of his control. They no longer wanted to submit to David's authority as king. So they were saying, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David was also speaking about someone else. Not just himself as God's anointed one, but another one, another person who was God's anointed one. I don't know if you know the the Hebrew word for anointed. I'm sure you've heard it, because it's the word Messiah. And the Greek version of that word is the word, another word that we're very familiar with. It is the word Christ. And the New Testament reveals to us that this psalm that David wrote was actually pointing forward to Jesus. So when Peter and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin, they were interrogated, they were threatened never to speak about Jesus again. And then Peter and John went back to their, their, the, the, the church, the other Christians, and they told them all about it. And in response they prayed this. In Acts chapter 4, it says this. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Then they quoted from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then they said this, verse 27 of Acts chapter 4. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy 
servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So those early Christians, in Acts chapter 4, understood the deeper meaning of Psalm 2. David wasn't just speaking about the opposition that he was experiencing from the surrounded, surrounding nations. He was looking forward to the world's opposition to Jesus. To the Messiah. To the ultimate anointed one. This rebellion against Jesus was of course most clearly seen at the cross. But it was also the reason why the persecution was continuing with the early church. It's the reason why the early church were suffering so much, being attacked, being persecuted, being threatened. There's also a reason why this persecution continues today. It is claimed that more Christians died for their faith in the previous century, the 20th century, than in all the other 19 centuries added together. So more Christians died last 100 years than all the other 1900 years put together. And according to Open Doors, which is an organisation that helps persecuted Christians, they say that every month, 255 Christians are killed, 104 are abducted, 180 women are raped or sexually harassed or forced into marriage, 66 churches are attacked, 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisoned. Now in Ireland, thankfully, that that kind of violence is not common. But I think if if we open our eyes, we'll see the hostility against Jesus, against the anointed one, is still very prevalent, isn't it? We see that hostility in government legislation that rejects God's standards for this world. We see it in the celebration of immorality all around us. We see it in the curse words that people use. Or in the criticism and ridicule that many of us experience at work or in our families or with our friends. I think it's really difficult to see that the nations of this world are still conspiring against the Lord and against His Anointed One. The nations are still trying to break free of God's control in their lives. They're still trying to break those fetters as they put, put it in this psalm. They're trying to reject Jesus as the rightful ruler of their lives. And the Bible says that this rebellion... This rebellion against the rule of Jesus is going to continue right into the end of the age. I know that some people may stand up and say, oh no, I think there's going to be such an amazing uh, renewal and everybody's going to start and trust in Jesus. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says it's heading to more and more rebellion against Christ. Revelation 19 pictures that. Pictures one day Jesus coming down from heaven, riding on a white horse with all the armies of heaven. And it says this, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. This world is in rebellion against God. And it will be right until the end of the age. 
So how should we respond to this? Should we be filled with fear and panic because we're living in such a hostile world? Should we worry that God has lost control of this world and and has just kind of gone out of control? Well, not according to this psalm. Yes, the nations are conspiring against God, but David said that their plotting is, see the last two words? In vain. Despite their impressive power and all of their ingenuity, these nations will ultimately fail. All their efforts will come to nothing. They will not succeed. They've expanded this on this in the next section. First of all, there's the Lord's derision. The Lord, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God knows just how foolish the rebellion is. These people think that they can succeed because they're rulers, they're kings, they're, they're those who are in control on this earth. But the Lord is the one who's in control in heaven. Not that this laughter implies that God finds us funny. He takes the rebellion very seriously. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. This anger, this this wrath of God, that's not loss of temper. As if God just loses the rag. Rather, his wrath is the righteous response of displeasure to those who defy him and his rightful rule in our life. It's the right response. It's the holy response. It's the righteous response to those who rebel against God. It's God's righteous, holy response to to mankind and their sin. And this leads to a declaration. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion comes up a lot in the Psalms. It's another name for Jerusalem. The place where David ruled from. When God installed David as king in Jerusalem, the nations around should have been terrified. Because God had his king in place. So their defeat was guaranteed. But much more than this, those who have rebelled against God should be afraid because God has installed His ultimate Holy One, the King of Kings. And that's why all of their plotting is in vain. This is why we do not need to be afraid. Yes, the the enemies are powerful and they're dangerous, but God's Messiah is on the throne. And the next section of this psalm, uh, David explains in more detail the identity of of the king and the extent and the power of his reign. Look at verse 7. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, originally this points to what God said to David when God made this covenant with David. After promising that David's son would be the king after him, God promised, I will be his father and he shall be my son. 
The rightful ruler of all the nation of Israel was, of course, God. But David and his sons and his descendants after him, they were to reign as sons of God. With the right and the authority to rule over God's people. But this verse that we just read in Psalm 2 points in greater depth to the true identity of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was baptised? Voice from heaven declared, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then on the Mount of Transfiguration, again God declared, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then Peter, in his very famous declaration of faith, he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Martha, I don't know how her declaration isn't quite so, so well known. She, when she was still grieving for the loss of her brother, she, she declared, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into this world. The Gospels are clear about the identity of who Jesus is. But when Paul was preaching in Antioch, he saw this bit of the psalm ultimately have been fulfilled in another, another part of Jesus' ministry in life. He said this in Acts chapter 13. We tell you the good news. What God has promised, what God promised our fathers, He's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you're my son. Today I've become your father. Doesn't mean that at this time Jesus became God's son. He was always the eternal son of God. But it was the resurrection of Jesus that ultimately revealed the true identity of who he was. Paul in Romans says the same thing. In Romans chapter 1 he says this, that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The empty tomb revealed the true identity of Jesus. You are my son. Today I become your father. And as the Son of God, as the ultimate Son of God, Jesus has the right to rule over the whole world. Look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. Do you remember when Jesus was crucified? Pilate put a sign across on top of his cross. Remember what it said? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the... Jews. That was true. Pilate got that bit right. But it wasn't the full story, was it? Because Jesus is much more than the king of Israel. He's much more than what the David, his ancestor, was. Because Jesus is the king of kings. And he's the rightful ruler of this whole world. So this is his inheritance. 
Philippians 2 says God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is king over everyone. And as the king, his rule will not be resisted forever. So verse 9, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. In his first coming, many people resisted and opposed Jesus. Ultimately, they they, uh, arrested him, they mocked him, they flogged him, they stripped him, and they nailed him to a cross. In the world's eyes, that was the end. Or in the words of Jesus' parable, they declared, we do not want this man to be our king. That's what they were declaring. But Jesus is one day going to come back. And he's going to rule in power. We already mentioned Revelation chapter 19. Remember Jesus riding down from heaven on a white horse? To defeat all those who had risen in rebellion against God. And Revelation 19 again quotes from this psalm. It says, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So this psalm is a declaration of the true identity and reign of Christ. He is the Son of God. He will rule over the whole world. And he's ultimately going to defeat all those who rise up against him. Nobody will be able to resist him on that day. So how should we respond to this? What should we do in the light of the coming king? Well, the Bible says that God doesn't want anyone to suffer this coming judgment. God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so in the last section, David gave a warning. He said this. Look at verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned. You rulers of the earth. This psalm is a warning to the world. It's a plea for them to wake up. It's a call for them not to foolishly continue in the rebellion against God anymore. Because it will lead to destruction at any moment. So David pleaded with them to bow to bow in worship, to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's the only proper response in the light of who Jesus is. Why fear and trembling, but also rejoicing? Well, fear and trembling because in awe and reverence for the creator of the world. The sovereign of the universe, the, the holy one who is high and lifted up. How could we respond any other way? But also in joy. Because in God's presence is fullness of joy. And this life of worship starts by accepting God's King. Kiss the Son 
lest he be angry. One day soon, Jesus is coming back as judge. Nobody knows when, but at that moment, it'll be too late to be reconciled to him. Those outside of Christ will be condemned. But for now, he is inviting us to accept him as our Saviour and our Lord. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. And for those of us, or those who bow before him and submit to him as king of of their lives, there's amazing grace. There is the gift of righteousness. There's full and free forgiveness. There's unending love. There's eternal security. Because of all, all because of the cross. Where our sins were paid for in full. So David concludes with a beatitude. With a blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed is everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. So this psalm is really like an evangelistic invitation. It goes out to all those who have not yet trusted in Jesus. It defines our problem. It says a rebellion against God is the problem. And if it's not dealt with, it's going to lead to a lost eternity. And it tells us that in stark stark language, because he doesn't want us to miss it. But it offers a solution. It says, trust in God's Son. Accept Him as King. Because if we run from Him, or run to Him for salvation, then we will be truly blessed. So it tells us the problem, and it tells us the answer. But just before I finish, I think there's just one other application for us. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, then this psalm should encourage us to preach that message of Jesus with confidence. Remember those apostles when they quoted from this psalm when they were praying after Peter and John were arrested and threatened by the Sanhedrin? They looked to this psalm and they recognised that God knew all along that this persecution was going to happen. God wasn't surprised by any of this opposition. But listen to what they asked for. Verse 29 and 30 of Acts 4. Now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. These apostles didn't panic about their situation. They didn't worry. They weren't paralysed by fear or anxiety over the opposition that they faced. Because they knew from this psalm that the sovereign God was in control. They knew that because of the resurrection, Jesus had been declared with power to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of the whole world. And they knew that God was one day going to come, or Jesus was one day was, was going to come to establish his kingdom and enforce his rule. And so with confidence and hope, they just asked for God to give them the power 
to energize them and equip them and empower them to fulfill Jesus' commission. To go and make disciples of all nations. They knew that they were going not to these far off lands that, that, that they didn't know who was in control, but they were going to those lands where Jesus was king. Because the whole world belonged to him. And because of this, they took the message of love and grace to this whole world, even to reaching to us. So I think this is how God wants us to respond to this psalm today. If we haven't accepted Jesus as our king, then don't delay. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't look at all around at this world who, is, who are rebelling against God and think, well, I can just go off and do my own thing. Because one day God is coming. And He will. He will enforce His will. So bow before Him before it's too late. And take refuge in Him as our Savior and King. But if we have accepted Him as King, and we don't need to be panicked or paralyzed or silenced by all of the opposition that is around. We can go with courage and conviction with the message of the gospel, knowing that even in this rebellious world, our God is in control. And Jesus, well, he's the one true 